Hello everyone, it's June 5th, 2018. We have Dan Van Hetron on this week. He's part of a student organization that is attempting to reach the Carmen line with the first student-built rocket. We're going to find out how it's going, so let's see what heights we can achieve in this show and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 161 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. Good morning, David. Good morning. So uh, how was your weekend? <laughs> My weekend's pretty good. I'm driving a really snazzy new car. It's a rental because uh don't want to say a drunk driver because I don't think that they were drunk. But somebody hit my car uh, while I was parked. And so I now have a rental car. It's the first car that I have driven for any period of time. Yeah, yeah, Dan in the chat says a human driver. Uh, yes, because there are robots on the roads, and this was not a robot. And this is the first vehicle that I've driven for, you know, a real period of time that has crash avoidance technologies, which, you know, I, I study at my day job, like that's part of what I do. And so my wife thinks I'm nuts because, you know, I'll be driving and I'll I'll be pushing the limits of these crash avoidance technologies. Um, like it has lane departure warning, which, you know, beeps at you if you don't have your turn signal on and you go over a lane line. Um, but it's actually really quiet on this vehicle, like to the point where if you have music on, you can't tell that it's binging at you. And it doesn't have a steering assist function that goes with it. So it's a little worthless. It also has crash imminent braking, which I am really tempted to try out, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm too chicken to. I-, I have driven with people who were... Uh, much more familiar with the systems, and they were willing to almost hit somebody to to get the crash imminent braking to go off. So what kind of a car is it then? It's a Nissan Rogue. Okay, well, I, d- I didn't know that they had that kind of technology. I mean, I didn't mm-hmm. know that that was a standard feature. Uh, I mean, it's not standard. It's something you have to pay for. But yeah, uh, pretty much every auto manufacturer at this point is offering uh, crash avoidance technologies in some form. But the the one that I love best, it's uh, it, it actually ties into the crash imminent braking system. It's an assisted cruise control. So you turn on cruise control, and if there's a car in front of you that slows down, the car will slow down with it. And this particular system will actually follow the car in front down to a stop some if the car in front of you gets below a certain speed it'll put off a warning and then shut off the system but this will actually follow them all the way down to stopped and then once they start again the car will actually start moving again by itself and that's really cool it is really really neat to take your foot off the gas and not have to worry about somebody cutting in front of you in your lane and having to slow down like it all happens by itself the only thing is that it's really hesitant to actually get up to your cruise speed Um, it'll accelerate really 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 slow so you know sometimes you have to kind of goose the gas to get back up to the speed that you asked it to to drive at but once it's there it's fine it sounds neat and i guess you can get used to it but for me i don't know how comfortable i would be with that because i would just feel this need to hit the brakes i mean and i'm sure that you can sense the vehicle slowing down but even then it's just I don't know. It just kind of might bother me, you know? Well, these systems all let you change the distance that you're, fo- you know, the follow distance. And with this Rogue, I actually can't tell the difference that much. There are three settings and it seems to do pretty much the same behavior for all three. But yeah, if if that's how you feel, if you want to use the system, you can just put that follow distance really far back and then you'll get a lot of lead time. It'll probably break before you would, depending on how you have it set. And you know, it's one of those things where if you don't feel comfortable with it, you don't have to use it. You know, it's just nice to, to have it there for the people who do. Cars are coming along quite quickly in terms of all that type of technology. We're getting off topic because we're talking about cars. I guess we should be talking about uh, spaceships and rockets and things of that nature. So do you want to move on to this week in spaceflight history? Sure. Um, just a few winners. Uh, Ming Lord, uh, Mike Carper, and a new guesser. Uh, their Twitter handle is Dauphin. So I'm going to go with Dauphin. 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 Okay. Uh, so the clue for last week was before you could take a trampoline to the ISS, there was dot, dot, dot. This week in spaceflight history is June 11th, 1928. It was the first flight of the first rocket powered airplane. So it's called the Liepisch Ente, and Ente means uh, duck in German. And uh, Liepisch is a guy's last name, so it's kind of like saying a you know a Toyota Corolla. Anyway, so the Ente was designed as a glider. You know, it's kind of kind of crazy because at, at this point 
we were really interested in developing uh, all sorts of of new airplanes and that's something that we do today like there there are all sorts of weird airplane types that are developed today but they i feel like you know we know that they're experimental and they're not going to enter you know into the commercial reality but back in 1928 we didn't know what commercial flight was going to look like we didn't know what was actually going to uh take off as it were and so um there was this little community of people building gliders and flying them basically in the mountains. They were, they were basically shoving these things off of cliffs and, and gliding around. Yeah, so this guy named Hans Liepisch developed uh, this vehicle. Um, and then this, this other guy, Fritz von Opel, was doing a lot of kind of crazy things like publicity stunts with rockets and with airplanes. And so he came to this little community of people flying and he was looking for the next thing he was going to do. And he, he found the Enta. And what was really nice about it was that it had canards in the front, which means that there's no tail in the back. And that means that it's really easy to put rockets on the back of the aircraft. So indeed, that's what they did. They strapped two black powder rockets that were developed by a company called Sander. Yes, uh, Dan in the chat points out this, this is the same guy as the the car company Opel, um, but this was before that was really a thing. I've never heard of the car company. Yeah, European cars. There are so many brands and models that are super familiar that we've just we never hear of here in the U.S. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's a big uh, it's a big company. And uh, so anyway, they they had these two black powder rockets that were you know strapped to the back of of this uh, airplane each one was 20 kilograms of force and uh, they had a 30 second burn time each so that's a minute if you fire them one at a time and what's really really cool is that they also included a counterweight system so if you have uh, rocket engines in a glider your center of gravity is going to move as these rockets burn because with gas-powered airplanes uh, if you put the gas tank at the center of mass, you're not really moving your center of mass. But with rockets, it moves quite drastically because they have to be at the back end of, of the airplane. So they put a counterweight in the front of the airplane that actually moved backwards as the rockets fired um, in sort of an automated balancing system, which is super cool. I, I think that's just the, the craziest thing. And then uh, this wood and skin airplane did not have wheels. It actually had one long skid down the middle, like a ski skid, um, which just kind of adds to the wild look that this thing had. I mean, it really doesn't look like anything that we fly today. So, so it had these two rockets, but it was actually intended originally to have a third rocket, um, a high thrust three second burn rocket and uh in small scale tests it actually pretty much uh destroyed the aircraft so they decided not to use it but the idea was to have this innovative launch rocket because previous to that they had been doing um launches with tow cables and you know actual rubber bands they they would have you know 20 people line up behind an aircraft and pull a gigantic rubber band backwards um just to get this glider up into the air so that uh so that it could begin its flight uh, and so you know you can imagine that proposing a rocket-assisted takeoff would be a pretty attractive thing, um, being able to launch an airplane without having, you know, 18 or 20 people come pull your, your aircraft back on a giant rubber band. It just, it cracks me up. So uh, this is where the clue comes in. The clue was before you could take a trampoline to the ISS, there was rock, or rubber band launched airplanes. Yeah, I can see how that would be a hard clue. Yeah, we, we got we to gotta have some easy clues and some hard clues. So, so we might have mentioned this uh, last week. I don't, I don't know if it made it into the final cut, but the Russian deputy prime minister at, at that time, Dmitry Rogozin, basically, th this was back during the most recent Crimea debacle. And basically, Russia told the US, you're not going to be riding on Soyuz anymore. So Rogozin was quoted as telling the US, you can get to the ISS on a trampoline. Just like, here you go. You're not using Soyuz. You can use a trampoline. So th this clue was was in reference to to that, but I thought it was uh, I thought it was a, a good kind of uh, 
indication of what I'm talking about, something uh, bouncy. But yeah, literally, literally flying these things on rubber bands. So crazy. Or at least, I guess, launching them on rubber bands. Right, right. Um, so uh, anyway, this this airplane flew twice. Both times it was piloted by Friedrich Stommer. Um, the first flight that he covered one and a half kilometers in 70 seconds, um, and that was firing one rocket after the other. For the second flight, he decided to fire both rockets at the same time, which isn't exactly how they had designed it to work, but you know, okay, let's, let's do it. And unfortunately one of the rockets, um, exploded. I don't think it was because he used them both at the same time. I think it was just a manufacturing flaw. Uh, you know, basically the back end of this airplane goes up in flames. Um, Stommer managed to pilot the thing down to the ground safely. Um, he wasn't hurt. He landed and got out of the airplane and took off running and the airplane, you know, burned down to a pile of ashes. On Wikipedia, they have some modern photography of clearly a model because the original burned to ashes, but they actually call, they don't indicate that it's a model on Wikipedia, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, but I'll have some photos in the show notes as well. Um, but there you go. The first rocket powered airplane. It successfully flew once and unsuccessfully flew a second time. Or would this have to be considered the first rocket-powered glider? Because it wouldn't an airplane be something that could fly as an airplane and then also have the addition of rockets? No, you don't. You don't necessarily have to have a second propulsion system to call it an airplane. I don't think. I, I guess yeah. so. A rocket with wings or an airplane with a with a, with a <laughs> rocket. Semantics. With that said, what's our clue for next week? Hopefully a little bit easier. Yeah, this one should be easier. Next week in 1991, the clue is space-flown jelly makes a good souvenir. That's a weird one. All right, so space-flown jelly makes a good souvenir. And that's next week in 1991. Um, I don't know, but if you think you know, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. So in the news, again, uh, VSS Unity, it flies again. So this is its second flight in as many months. So it, it flew on April 5th, and we talked about that, and it's flown again, I think it was May 29th. So this second flight, I mean, there's, there's not a whole lot to say, but it is interesting just to compare this flight with the previous one. And what's cool is just, as far as I can tell, it's just burn time, the actual time that the engine was running that makes the difference here. I could be wrong because I don't know about the exact altitude of release and I don't know what the angle was during ascent. I believe it was 80 degrees uh, last month when we talked about that first flight. Yeah, this one this one looked pretty high. I mean, the, the angle of attack or the, the angle of ascent looked pretty high. But I couldn't find anything in any articles about what the ascent angle was, but I assume it's the same. But just real quick here, um, before I go into the numbers, so the reason for this was, as far as I can tell, was just to get some idea of how it would handle with the seats on board that are for the passengers. So so that first flight last month was just the two pilots, and I guess they had kind of like taken out like everything they would go in the fuselage. So there was no seats, there was no other whatever equipment that you would need to, I guess, stow various things. I don't know what you would put in the VSS Unity if you had actual people on board, maybe like little oxygen masks or something, you know, yeah. in case of an emergency, like on an airplane. Even still, like the, the seats and restraints can't be super light. I mean, they, they probably add a decent amount of mass. Right. What's interesting is that according to the article, which was in Spaceflight Now, putting these seats in, this actually shifted the center of gravity rearward. And I would have thought it, really? it would have shifted it forward. Yeah, because you have the engine in the back, and I assume that that's what weighs the most, but... Yeah, the, the, seats... the center of mass is pretty pretty far back in this vehicle. That that really surprises me. So, I mean, it might have been a typo or some kind of a misprint, but um, it says rearward, and that actually really surprised me. But the idea was to get an idea of the flight characteristics with all this extra stuff put in there. Yeah, so going back to the numbers, so that flight last month, uh, that reached a maximum altitude of 25.6 kilometers, a maximum speed of 1.87, or uh, Mach 1.87, and that was a... 30 second burn this flight may 29th was a maximum altitude of 34.9 kilometers so quite a bit higher um in a maximum speed of mach 1.9 so just slightly faster so you have mach 1.87 this is mach 1.9 and it burned for 31 seconds so i'm assuming that that extra one second gave it that extra 0 0.03 mach um <laughs> But I don't really know. Yeah, and there's rounding in there as well, so it's... Exactly, yeah. Well, and that's kind of what I think about, is that there's these little 
I mean, you're talking about some pretty small numbers there. So is that indeed what accounts for that difference is having one extra second of burn time? Or is it just kind of something that gets lost in the static there? Because, um, but I don't know how precise you can be with a hybrid rocket engine. And once again, it also depends on exactly the altitude at which this was released, which I assume was the same altitude. Not a huge difference, but there was a huge difference in the maximum altitude. So we had 25.6 kilometers the first time, and this is 34.9 kilometers. So that's quite a bit higher. That's a, you know, that's almost 10 kilometers higher in altitude. So the interesting thing was looking at this is it, and a lot of people have said this is it, it didn't look very stable, both going up and coming back down again. I noticed it both ways. Some people have, have only commented on the descent of the vehicle that it's kind of like wobbling in the wind there but it didn't look like it was particularly stable going up as well is that something that you noticed or was that just my imagination i I had a little quick discussion on twitter about this actually we'll have a link to a twitter account that actually has um, a nice close-up view of the ascent as well as an overlay um, which shows an approximate um, center uh, of mass um, and you can see it pitching and rolling around that center of mass so it looks like that's a good approximation and yeah it really is is kind of um floating around there if the center of mass is is moving forward then that makes the vehicle more stable but if it's moving and potentially more stable is not always a good thing because if you're very very stable you're a lawn dart and you can't do anything but do parabolic arcs if they're moving the center mass backwards it's less stable which potentially is a good thing um, depending on where you are but it it also is potentially setting up uh, a more difficult control environment and the fact is that they are there are human pilots flying this thing, so their reaction times are much slower, and they're they're also facing upward, so they have fewer visual cues. Um, so you know th- this may just be uh, a bunch of things all coming together. But yeah, it, de- it definitely looked like a wobbly flight to me. The other theory is that this is actually due to the pilots that they were actually playing around with it a little bit just to get you know some feel for it because they were that confident of the stability. Um, I don't know if that's true. But, you know, that's another going theory. It doesn't seem that way to me. It seems like it was actually wobbling due to some kind of flight instability. And again, it was doing the same thing on the way back down, which I can kind of understand because you have this very thin atmosphere and you don't have much control Mm -hmm. authority from, you know, the wings and various surfaces at that point. So it's just going to do that. The important thing is that it does ultimately like orient itself correctly as it hits uh, the thicker atmosphere. Um, which it did. What was neat, and I'm sure this has happened before, and I just didn't notice it, is it when they put the feathers down, you know, the wings, I guess, like the downward position. They um, they put the wings into the feathered configuration on the way down, then they defeather it, put them back down to, to glide. Okay, yeah, sure. Defeather, that's a good way of putting it. Um, so <laughs> I don't know if that's the technical yeah, term. Because that's kind of like deplume, right? So when they defeather the thing, it's not the wings that go down, it's actually the fuselage because, of course, you know, the wings are there within the wind. Then at that point, it's it seemed to be pretty stable, but the whole time that it was falling, it was just kind of wobbling and it just looked really, I don't know, kind of funny, like that wasn't what it was designed to do. Um, but perhaps it was. But I don't know how much confidence it's inspiring in potential customers although it already has i think a couple hundred signed up (laughs) but um yeah but yeah so this is the second flight and according to richard branson there are two or three more left before they reach space and that was his quote um but i did remember he said before they reach space for the first time with this vehicle but they're not going to reach space right because this thing can only go up to 80 kilometers because of all the extra hardware that they had to put on the vehicle for safety reasons so it's not going to ever reach space so i don't know why he said that i guess other than uh, he wanted to yeah i mean define space right well i mean we've officially decided it's going to be 100 kilometers which is you know the carmen line so who's who's officially though like that's that's yes that's definitely the general consensus but that's not i suppose and yes being like 80 kilometers up is just as good visually i think as being 100 i mean i'm sure it looks awesome let's put it this way you're not going to get any astronaut wings for 80 kilometers yeah and and branson said he was going to become an astronaut so i mean i i agree i think it's very reasonable to assume that that means 100 kilometers. But yeah, Sam Sam in the chat says, uh, all we know is it can't go to space on a passenger flight. It might be able to reach space on test flights. That seems reasonable. Well, that is true. But yeah, that thing really oscillated on the way down. Like it just, it, it almost looked like it was um, caught in, uh, you know, a feedback loop where the, 
you know, where the pilots are making corrections slower than they need to. Yeah, really weird. Time to do some short and sweet. We just got two in. What is our first? All right, first up, DARPA wants in on new space. So DARPA has traditionally invested in large high orbit satellites, which are classed as high cost and low risk. However, as manufacturing has gotten cheaper and rides to high orbit haven't, the rest of the world is slowly turning to small, low orbit satellites. And now the US military wants to be part of the distributed cool crowd too. We've spent decades looking for good defense mechanisms for spy satellites, and it seems like just making them easy to replace might be the way to go. DARPA announced a new program called Blackjack last year, and the deadline for proposals is this week on the 6th. They'll first collect proposals on buses, and then they will turn around and hand out bus specs to instrument manufacturers bidding to kit out the new spacecraft. Next up, a GOES-17 can't keep its cool. The new GOES-17 weather satellite has been experiencing problems with its ABI, which is the Advanced Baseline Imager, which makes atmospheric observations in the visible and infrared. For the instrument to function properly, it must be kept at a temperature of negative 350 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in Celsius. I didn't look it up. As of right now, the cooling system is only holding that temperature for 12 hours a day. Experts from NOAA, NASA, and the ABI contractor are pursuing possible solutions, and if the issue cannot be resolved, it will not mean a total loss for NOAA, but it would set back advances in more accurate forecasting for weather phenomena until another spacecraft can be launched, or until another such spacecraft can be launched. Uh, so, yeah, um, no infrared imaging for, I guess, half the day, 12 hours. I don't know why it's exactly 12 hours, yeah, but... that's interesting. Maybe it's just the dark side. It's okay when it's at night, and then it swings around to the daytime and heats back up. Yeah, which now makes me wonder, what kind of an orbit would you need to be in to be in darkness for exactly 12 hours during your yeah. orbit? Uh, if it's geostationary, then it's probably uh, due to its orientation to the sun. So 12 hours of the day, it's shielded by a solar cell or something like that. And then the other half of the orbit, it's facing the wrong direction, like facing towards the sun. I bet you, I bet you that's what it is. Yep, that's probably it. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and this week we just have one interesting uh, comment from us about Ignition, because it is back, the book, yeah. by the way, if no one knows what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, they decided to reissue the book, which is super cool, and I, I don't think that we had that much of an impact on it, but like I would like to believe that that's the case. Yeah. And so the paperback got released. They actually um, had a little bit of a delay because there was more demand uh, than they expected. Um, but the paperbacks went out like I think two weeks ago. And then the other really cool thing is the audiobook is now a thing. So we, for those who uh, haven't been listening for that long, we actually tried to make an audiobook ourselves. And when I contacted Rutgers University Press to, to talk about purchasing the rights to make an audiobook, turns out that the rights were already owned by one of our listeners, uh, Nat Guy. And so we teamed up with Nat for a little bit, and we were trying to do an audiobook, and we basically bit off more than we could chew, and then other priorities came up. So um, Nat ended up uh, returning the rights, or selling the rights back to Rutgers, and then Rutgers is like, okay, well, this is a really good thing. We need to uh, we need to get this back out. So they turned around and sold it to Penguin Random House, um, who, of course, did the correct thing, which is hire an actor and publish an audiobook right away <laughs> instead of yeah, hire a professional. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so the audiobook is out and uh, I had talked to them about it um, and they actually offered to give us a little demo. So we have um, a few minutes of the audiobook that we'll go ahead and play after the end credits. Um, that you can enjoy. And then um, it's being sold on Audible. It's $23 uh, if you buy it without an Audible uh, subscription, not description. So there you go. Uh, the book is Ignition, an Informal History of Liquid Rocket Propellants. It was written by John Drury Clark. And uh, it's, it's really, really good. So this week we have with us someone who I think we always have with us, but this time he's going to be talking to us. Someone who's always in our ground control chat room. Dan, I don't know how to say your last name. Uh, Dan Van... In, in Dutch, it's Dan Van Heter, but 
close enough. Uh, hi. <laughs> hey, Dan. Good to, good to hear from you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, so you're here to talk to us about something a student organization called D.A.R.E., and that is not Drug Abuse Resistance Education for those of us <laughs> in America. You, you probably don't know what that is, but for everyone else, that's the first thing that I think that we think of. Um, yep. So if you could explain, what is D.A.R.E.? So uh, D- D.A.R.E. is a uh, student organization. It stands for uh, Delft Aerospace Rocket Engineering, and we're basically a group, uh, a pretty big group, uh, over 100 people by now, uh, of students in Delft in the Netherlands who build rockets in their free time. And I'm mostly here to talk about Stratos 3, which is the uh, flagship rocket we're working on right now. Uh, but I also uh, have some information about like there as a whole and, and what we do uh, and stuff like that. Yeah, so I think people might know Delft uh, University from your Hyperloop vehicle that went to the first Hyperloop competition and I think did pretty well. So I, I guess you guys... Not only did they do well, they actually won the competition. Oh, they won. Okay. Yeah, there you go. I, nice. I knew you yes. guys got to the top. <laughs> I can explain a bit about uh, about how that works because uh, as a technical university, the TU Delft set up an initiative a while back uh, called the Dream Teams. And it's basically groups of students uh, that are completely student-driven, like all students, no professors involved. Uh, that basically get access to a pretty nice workshop and, and some pretty nice resources in order to compete in competitions like this and to try to work on programs like this. Oh, cool. And there is one of those dream teams. But uh, as you said, we have a team working on Hyperloop, but we also have a team working on uh, solar cars, doing the uh, Nuon Solar Challenge in Australia. And we have been really successful over there as well, like winning several iterations. And there are teams like making all kinds of stuff, like from fast cars to fast motorbikes to fast rockets. boats, solar boats, like everything. Like cool. uh, it's it's a really interesting uh, place to work in. And we meet these people every day while we're building our rockets too. Yeah. Well, so, um, I mean, we, we ultimately want to talk about your rocket, but I would love to hear more about this workspace that you get to use because that's that's really special. A lot of people, you know, don't get to have uh, nice, nice workstations. That's right. It's a, it's a really special place to work. Basically, it's, it's a fairly large workspace with a bunch of, uh, bunch of machinery, like uh, lathes, mills, but also like bandsaws, CNC machines, uh, all kinds of stuff. And we basically share the, the working space. We each have a, have a small workshop with like our own tools and stuff, but then the machines are shared between everybody. So you, you tend to work in your own work uh, space, but when using the machines, like you, you interact with all these people from these different teams and you often like borrow tools and, and talk about what other teams are doing as well. So it's this really interesting environment to work in because every, every team is working on like breaking boundaries, like doing stuff that nobody's ever done before or doing stuff at, at the top level of that form of engineering. So you're really, uh, everybody there is driven to, to do the best they can. That's really cool. Uh, it's so exciting to have students, you know, who can dedicate themselves to all sorts of different fields, but then like engineering, like you guys can be on the top of your field and just, just cruise through. That's really awesome. Why don't you go ahead and tell us, I guess, about Stratus's history. Let's, let's kind of start at the beginning. I can start with a, with a brief uh, history of, of DARE and Stratus because yeah. um, DARE is, is the organization, like the, the group of students. Uh, but within DARE, Stratus has pretty much always been the biggest project. So their history is kind of intertwined. Uh, DARE was founded in 2001, so quite a while back, but it was only, back then it was only six people. And in the beginning, they really slowly grew and the first like real large rocket attempt that was done was only done in uh, 2009, uh, and that was Stratos 1, uh, where we uh, launched to uh, 12.3 kilometers, uh, and that was at that moment the student altitude record in Europe uh, for rocketry. A while, a while later, we built Stratos 2, which this time had a hybrid engine, where Stratos 1 was a, was a solid engine and was two-stage. Stratos 2 was a single-stage hybrid engine rocket, but that attempt uh, actually failed because we had a uh, leak of the nitrous oxide system, which froze the main valve. So the engine couldn't fire. Basically, like, yeah, that, that, that was the end of, uh, of that, uh, of that attempt. That was in 2014. Then in 2015, we tried again with Stratus 2 Plus, which is a slightly modified and basically like the team improved a bunch of stuff throughout the year and then tried again. And, uh, on the 16th of October in 2015, we, uh, launched to 21.5 kilometers which uh, was, again, the uh, student altitude record in Europe for rocketry. Uh, since then, a team in, uh, in, in Germany, uh, high-end, broke our record in uh, 2016. 
and put it at like uh, 34 point something kilometers. Uh, and we're basically now trying to get it back. So that's the, the very brief overview history of, uh, of what we've uh, done so far. And the Stratus 3 project is basically the current phase of the Stratus project, where the goal of the Stratus project is eventually to reach space and hopefully be the first team to do so, where we have some pretty stiff competition. Yeah, and that wouldn't be the first European team. That would be the first world student team, right? Yes. Currently, the uh, excluding some some fringe cases where I, I believe there's some, like, uh, there's some weird cases where people have bought uh, entire setups uh, and there's been some more military academy attempts, I think. But ex excluding the fringe cases, the uh, world record for student altitude rocketry at the moment is about 44 kilometers. So, yeah, no student team has ever on their own reached space yet. So that is the record. You said 44 kilometers. Is, is that a record for a student team? Or are you saying it's not quite the same thing because they might have used some other technology that they didn't build themselves? It's the, That's the record for student-built rockets. So if, if the student team has, like, no student team has built their own rocket to go past that altitude. Okay, and who holds that record? I'm not entirely sure. That's kind of bad that I don't know that. But it's it's uh, it's an it's uh, one of the American uh, teams. There recently was supposed to be an attempt from another team, but they actually didn't launch. So yeah, Purdue recently attempted. Oh yeah, yeah, Purdue also recently attempted. Though I think that was a, a, also a bot rocket, like they bought the uh, the rocket, and the second stage failed, so they also didn't come close to breaking the record. And that just goes to show how challenging this entire process is, especially for a group of students. Because if you look budget-wise, like what we have to spend compared to what like actual rocketry companies have to spend, it's like nothing. Like our entire project costs significantly less than what SpaceX spends in a day. So it's this really interesting place where you have to come up with really interesting solutions to problems that most people don't even have. And the fact that you guys are students means that you also have this sort of weird hybrid way of doing things where students often are, are using techniques that aren't even really being considered by a lot of larger companies. But at the same time, they also are trying to use very well-documented techniques that are easy to do. So I think that's why I just, I love student rocketry. I think it's really cool. We try, but like there isn't that, especially in, in hybrid rocketry, there isn't that much that we can actually use that is well documented. Like we have the, uh, as far as I am aware and the other people in the team are aware, uh, we have the largest student built hybrid engine mm. ever fired. And that comes with a whole slew of problems because large hybrid engines have some instability problems that are really hard to solve. You get like vibrations in, in the combustion chamber, which can be, uh, really bad for the engine. Uh, and you can like see from, uh, from I think it's Virgin Galactic that had uh, some problems with, uh, with their, like, they have a hybrid engine as well. And they actually had a, had a fatal accident with a quite similar uh, engine that we had. So it's uh, something that we have to be like really careful about. Though in the reason why we have it as, as an engine is because of its safety. Because uh, actually a really fun fact is that every ingredient in both of our propellants, so the, the oxidizer and the fuel, uh, have E-numbers, so are technically food additives, <laughs> which is a really, it's, it's nice to work with non-toxic materials. So maybe it's, uh, it's uh, nice if I explain a few things about, uh, about the, the rocket and then maybe move on to, to the engine specifically. Before we do that, yeah, I just want to say I did a quick Google and I found out that uh, the maximum record held right now um, is by the University of Southern California. So they're the ones that hit yeah. 44 kilometers. Yeah, so that was it. So yeah, let's let's talk about your rocket. Tell us, tell us about what you guys are doing. So it's the, the largest rocket we've ever built. Uh, it's 8.2 meters high, uh, which is like Huge. several stories high. Like yeah. it's actually... Like we, we're having trouble moving it around in our workplace because it barely slash dot really fits in our workplace. Yeah. So real quick, we'll link to a photo that you guys just tweeted uh, from the rollout. And it's um, a, yeah. a fairly, re I mean, it's a reasonably sized lecture hall, um, sort of a medium sized lecture hall. And the rocket pretty much goes from edge to edge of the stage. It's huge. Yeah. The total mass uh, when fueled is about like 350 kilos, though we're not entirely sure yet because we're still making some parts and we still have to fuel it up and weigh it. So that's one of the challenging things. Like we make so many of our own parts and because they are hand and custom made and assembled like at the last moment, like 
we, we have done some practice assemblies and such, but we don't know the exact weight yet. But it, it is it is roughly in the, the 330 to 350 kilos when, when full. The, the, the empty mass is, uh, it's, it's a bit harder to, uh, to say even, um, because, well, it, it's still constantly changing, but it, it's, it's over a hundred kilos, should be less than 150. I'm sure there is better numbers, but I, I don't have them with me right now, so. But yeah, uh, we, like, over half of the entire length of the rocket is, uh, taken up by the, uh, oxidizer tank, because nitrous oxide is not that dense of a, of an oxidizer. And basically, the, the goal is to store, like, about 170 kilos of uh, nitrous oxide in the tank. The nice thing about nitrous oxide is that it's self-pressurizing, which means we just load it in, we heat it, and then it's good to go. So we don't have any uh, additional gases to pressure with or anything like that. It's just put the nitrous in, heat the tank up to the right temperature, to, so it self-pressurizes to flight pressure of uh, around 60 bar, uh, at which point we uh, we can actually launch. The cool thing is that the, the, the tank of Stratus 3, because we actually use uh, composite overwrap tank design, the, the fuel tank, the oxidizer tank for Stratus 3 is actually lighter, uh, or roughly the same weight as the oxidizer tank for Stratus 2, which was significantly smaller. Like Stratus 3 is roughly a one and a half times scale Stratus 2, with all the stuff you have to change if you change scale, which is almost everything. But in, in general design, that, that's roughly how it goes. On top of the, the oxidizer tank, we have, uh, the nose gun and the recovery bay. And that's basically where all the, where most of the smart part of the rocket is. Like we, uh, we actually have a, a, a payload, uh, which is testing some, some flight computer, uh, stuff for an actual sounding rocket, uh, development. And that's also in that section. The idea is that at Apogee, like once we reach Apogee, the, the highest point of the flight, the, uh, very top part of the rocket, like the top meter or so with the, with the recovery bay and, recovery bay and the nose gun actually split off. And at that point, they fall separately and then the parachute deploys. Uh, so we actually recover the, the top part of the rocket, but we do not recover the uh, oxidizer tank and the hmm. engine. Why was that choice made? Mainly because the oxidizer tank and the engine are so big and it's simply not worth the extra mass you need and the extra uh, complication to recover those uh, those pieces. Um, for some of the smaller rockets within there, we do actually recover the entire thing and we do actually reuse them but not for uh, for Stratus because it's simply too big. And we're probably, if everything goes right, not going to fly another one anyway. So it doesn't really, mm. it's not the highest priority to recover again. So you said that most of the smart parts of the rocket are in the recovery bay. Do you have uh, other microcontrollers somewhere else in the rocket or what's, what's going on? Because of safety reasons and other stuff, we actually have a uh, flight termination system. Uh, and that's actually installed in between the tank and the engine, so at yeah. the bottom of the tank. And that actually has a separate receiver and a whole separate system uh, that just keeps that running. I believe there's also some processing going on uh, in the engine bay. So like to control the valves and stuff, I believe there's some control uh, down there as well. But the flight computer's at the bottom. Okay, so you know I want to talk about this this flight termination system. That's kind of what I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah, what, what does that look like? Basically, it's a, a, a death cord wrapped around some of the structural elements between the tank and the engine, so that if at any point the termination signal is sent, the rocket's basically split in half uh, and the engine immediately stops uh, firing. It's a bit of a crude solution, but it, it works. Hey, if it works for the big boys, it can work for you. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Like, um, in the original design, it actually wasn't there, but because we're just launching such a big rocket from an actual launch site, they pretty much, as part of those regulations, as part of launching there, we actually need to install this system. Yeah, because that was going to be my next question is, is this something that you have to do? Because I don't know of many student rockets that have that, or I could be wrong, but I, I, I don't think that that's a common feature, but this is something that you had to implement for safety. Yeah, mo mostly because of the, the, the high power of the rocket and the high altitude we're going to. Like if you go off course or if you leave the, the safety exclusion zone, like there needs to be a way to stop, uh, stop the rocket. And for a lot of student, a lot of student rockets are either, uh, when launched in the United States, they're often launched in places where uh, there is a lot of uh, free space or they are not going that high. So they don't have this like huge zone in which they could potentially go. Well, and a lot of student rockets are solid rockets anyway, and there's nothing you can do to. To effectively terminate, unless you, you know, break it up into tiny little, tiny little pieces that are burning down through the atmosphere. The goal of the, the flight termination isn't as much to stop combustion. It is mostly to limit 
the the like place where you're going, okay. like to, to to stay within a certain zone, basically to cut off thrust. Because like even like we have big rocket for students uh, purposes, but like the the entire length of the burn is 38 seconds. So like before you could hit anything, you're going to be out of fuel anyway. So the actual threat is hitting something, not so much having burning fuel while hitting something. So if you can cut off your thrust or basically stop your velocity in any way, then that's plenty for a termination system. Okay, okay, fair enough. So uh, I think the, the, the final piece of the rocket that I haven't uh, really talked about yet is the engine. As I said earlier, it's the largest student-built hybrid engine in the world. We uh, During testing, we actually measured a peak thrust of 25 kilonewtons, uh, which is actually more than you need to lift an elephant. And the average thrust during the liquid phase of the burn, which lasts about 25 seconds, is 15 kilonewtons. So it's uh, considering the rocket at liftoff weighs in the order of magnitude of 300 kilos. That means your average thrust-to-weight ratio, well, well, not even average because your weight decreases as you go, but your thrust-to-weight ratio is like between 7 and 5 during the burn. So you actually, like the acceleration on smaller rockets like this is, is actually insane. And the, the, one of the big developments of Stratus 3 over Stratus 2 is that the engine can burn a lot longer, which means that you can actually make it out of uh, the thicker part of the atmosphere more so that you can get up to a significantly higher speed, which means you can reach a way higher altitude. Because launching sounding rockets in this area, like this group of altitudes, is actually really challenging because you get up to a really high speed while launching, which means aero, uh, aerodynamic forces are really high, which try to slow you down. And if your, en if your engine burns out too quickly, then you'll slow down before you exit the thick part of the atmosphere, and then you won't reach a high altitude. And then once you're past that and you can get up to a decent speed, you can actually get to a really high altitude relatively easily. So just because the record is now only 40-something kilometers, that may seem like, oh, we're only 40% of the way there, but actually we're like 80% of the way right. there. Because you've done most of the challenging part, you just need to get up to speed again above the thick part of the atmosphere. So you just need to burn that little bit longer. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. So in terms of energy, you are much closer than you think, or you know, than I guess we think. Um, you just have to get out of the thick atmosphere, and then you're pretty much home free, and you can just coast the rest of the way up. Yeah, because a, a lot of sounding rockets in general are they have relatively short engine burns, and then they coast to apoapsis or apogee. The problem with uh, lower altitude sounding rockets is that that coasting phase is in the thick part of the atmosphere. So, uh, like you said, you're using a, a hybrid rocket, so your oxidizer is, is flowing past a solid fuel. What fuel are you using, and what is the shape of that combustion chamber, or the, the shape of the fuel grain? The, the fuel we use is, uh, is a mixture, like uh, uh, an in-house developed mixture of uh, sorbitol, paraffin, and aluminum powder. Oh, wow. So sorbitol is a, is a sweetener. Uh, paraffin is basically candle wax, and aluminum powder is simply a pain to work with, uh, <laughs> but you need it for the performance. So before we actually developed our, our big engine, there was a small test campaign where we tested a bunch of uh, smaller uh, engines um, with some different fuel compositions. Though for Stratus 3, it was largely taken from Stratus 2, so it's been this we're quite experienced with this mixture. Basically what we do is, because not only is it in-house developed, it's also like we make it ourselves. So uh, we melt down in this like giant, what's effectively like a giant pot. We melt that, we melt the sorbitol and the paraffin down. And then for the aluminum powder, we actually have to wear these uh, entirely closed off suits and gas masks and stuff because the particle size is so small that you can't really breathe it in. So uh, we set up this entire uh, space, uh, like with plastic and such to, to close everything off because aluminum powder gets everywhere and everything it touches becomes silvery gray. So it's this this really nasty stuff to work with. But I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think the performance gain you get is uh, in the order of magnitude of about 30%. But uh, but most of the, the, like, by far the biggest component is the sorbitol. So it's basically a sugar base. This, the shape of the grain is it's a, a hollow tube. So it's basically, uh, you can imagine that the rocket, uh, for the bottom part of the rocket, it's solid except for a, uh, a tube shape in the middle that's missing, where the, the oxidizer flows through. And as the burn progresses, it slowly uh, goes to the outside. Right. Yeah. It's it's kind of the standard shape for this kind of rocket. Yeah. It's 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 the the, the standard. Yeah. No, nothing fancy. So yeah. So I I don't think I've ever heard of a sorbitol paraffin aluminum powder rocket before. Is this a mixture that 
that you guys came up with out of whole cloth or was there um, something that led you to deciding on this this mixture I wasn't personally involved in this, but I'm pretty sure there there are uh, like sorbitol and nitrous oxide is a pretty that gets used, and aluminum powder is a component in a lot of hybrids because of the added performance. That's actually one of the more studied things in in the hybrid rocketry field. And I do think sorbitol paraffin aluminum uh, or, uh, rockets are relatively common. Apparently, sorbitol is is also known as rocket candy. Yep. So it's mm-hmm. quite common. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah it is. The other student team that we interview fairly regularly, uh, SEDS UCF IREC, they, they use uh, a sorbitol rocket. And paraffin. So what does paraffin do in this mixture? Like, I'm assuming it's probably helping to, to work as a binder, um, but it also, I mean, it does combust. Yeah, it helps it. Indeed, it helps as a binder. It does combust, and it also makes the uh, whole casting process easier because of its low melting temperature. Interesting. Um, so you said when you're, you know, melting your fuel down, you're doing it in a giant pot. Are you able to cast your grain all at once or is it segmented? What we basically do is we, we cast our, our, our grains in three segments because like it's it's quite tall and working with hot liquids at, at high temperatures, like the casting is already difficult. <laughs> right, right, right. So what we do is we cast in, in three uh, segments, then we saw those off at length, and then we use uh, basically a small amount of, of, of molten fuel, which we just melt down in what's effectively just in a regular pan on an electric stove. And we take a bit of that and basically uh, melt uh, with uh, a blowtorch, the top and bottom parts of, like the bottom of one segment, the top of another segment, add some of the uh, liquid fuel in it or the, the molten fuel in it, and then basically stick them together uh, inside the housing that's also going to be in, in the rocket, and then let it cool. So it basically welds together into a single uh, frame. Rocket fuel hot glue. Basically. How tall are these these segments that you're casting in one sitting? Because I'm, I'm assuming they're still pretty large. Yeah, they, they're, they're about order of magnitude, like 40 or 50 centimeters. Uh, but we cut a, a, a piece of them off uh, so the total length works out. And always when casting, the top part of the grain is of really bad quality because like, it doesn't cool with a perfectly flat top with like this really weird surface so you have to saw quite a bit off sure. uh, and uh how do you how do you cut it do you just throw it on a bandsaw or like i mean it's it's rocket fuel there's uh we, we use uh we use a bandsaw to cut uh <laughs> cut through it it goes really slowly because otherwise like we can risk damaging the, the, the fuel grain but there's basically uh our workshop has uh has an old bandsaw that like other teams don't really use anymore that they don't mind covering in rocket fuel <laughs> partially but also um the way uh, that machine works works out better for for the way we want to mm. to cut our fuel grains basically it's a, it's you you uh, clamp the object in and then the saw comes down from the top uh we also have a bunch of band saws where you push your uh, object through we have another one that works like this but that's not big enough to cut our fuel grains because the diameter of the rocket's 28 centimeters so, like, that's big enough that a lot, a lot of machines struggle with uh, with those dimensions. So, you, you said that you you cut this thing really slow. Um, do you have to worry about melting at all? If you were to, I mean, obviously you can't speed up for a number of reasons, but is melting one of them? Um, as far as I'm aware, no. Cutting this stuff is really hard because, like, it's this mix of of camel wax and and solid sugar, pretty much at, at room temperature. So it's this quite tough material which really does not like to be removed. So actually, cutting through it is mostly hard because you want to scrape away the material and not push away the material, like not not deform it. So uh, it takes, I think, about like 15 or 20 minutes to uh, make a single cut. Okay, that's pretty insane. What does your grain mold look like? I mean, obviously, we know it's, you know, two tubes nested inside of each other, but what is it made out of? Basically, we have a, a, a base, which is a, a block of aluminum uh, largely made on a, on a lathe. Um, and then we have an outer tube and an inner tube. The outer tube is made of uh, aluminum. I think the inner one is made of steel. And I think the inner one is a standard tube. And the outer out one actually also is a standard tube. But the outer tube also has uh, has a liner in it. I actually don't know why they have the liner in the outer tube, but uh, the outer tube has a liner in it. And at the top, there's this wooden disc that basically fits on uh, nicely. Uh, and it has a hole in the middle to center the, uh, the coring rod so that after we pour the grain, we can put that on. And then we know that the, the coring rod is in the center of the grain. Cool. I have maybe another uh, uh, thing of interest to uh, you know, and that's that, uh, of course, as a, as a rocket, we don't only have rocket scientists on board. We also have quite an amount of uh, electrical engineers because all of the electronics on our rocket are 
developed ourselves. We have a team that actively designs our PCBs and, and writes the software for them. Awesome. So like the entire flight computer and, and all the flight electronics are made in-house. According to the website, these are just, as you said, designed in-house, and uh, they are designed to withstand uh, enormous loads and shockwaves, it says. So just out of curiosity, what kind of loads are we talking about? I, I mentioned before how the, like the, during liftoff, the thrust-to-weight ratio is like the, the highest it reaches is about 7, so that's uh, 7 Gs. The vibration loads, I'm not entirely sure on. I, I, I don't have those uh, those numbers. Of course, that also varies because hybrid engines are not that consistent. They can vary quite a bit. So it can be like six or whatever, but it's in that range. Well, so so that kind of brings up another question since you said that it's a cylindrical fuel grain or shaped fuel grain. Does it increase in thrust as it burns or I guess is it more or less the same? But I would imagine because the diameter is increasing, it would go up but I don't know if that's necessarily the case. It slightly goes down, and this is because we're self-pressurized, so the uh, pressures actually go down over the duration of the burn. I see, okay. Um, so like the, the mushroom chamber pressure and the tank pressure uh, decrease over the duration of the burn, which means the thrust also goes down. But for most of the burn, it's quite constant. So it doesn't go down that fast, but it does go down. Well, that's kind of neat because it's sort of like a built-in mechanism to keep the thrust more or less constant. I mean, it does go down a bit, but um, that's pretty cool. So essentially, your oxidizer goes down in pressure as the fuel grain increases in diameter, and it all kind of balances out. Yeah. That's kind of cool. So uh, for the question uh, in the chat about the uh, the ISP, the first number I, I have with me right now about the ISP is uh, an average number for the entirety of the burn. So maybe it's also good to explain at this point that um, because of our oxidizer, our burn actually has two phases, a liquid phase and a gaseous phase, because at a certain point, all of the liquid nitrous oxide has been used, but then there's still quite a high pressure of gaseous nitrous oxide left in the tank. But the efficiencies are lower during that part. But average over the entirety of the, of the burn, our ISP is about 185 seconds. Okay, so moving upwards from your engine, uh, you said that you have uh, a carbon overwrapped tank. Is that right for the oxidizer? Yes, and the main reason for that, like the the aluminum, really functions as a as a liner mostly. Uh, I I think the main reason is because uh, because uh, nitrous and carbon don't work that well together. But like the the like the strength comes from the carbon fiber, and that's actually because um, that's another nice thing to mention. Like. Most of our resources come from sponsor sponsorships. So we have a lot of companies that are willing to help us with problems like this. And the overwrapping of the tank is actually one of the things that was done, uh, not in our facilities, but somewhere else, because we simply don't have a machine to do that. You were able to convince somebody to, to overwrap a gigantic tank for you. That's that's pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> it's also really nice because we also get like get to meet people from these companies and work work together with them which of course is also really great for us because we get to work with, with professionals and also really great for those people because they get to work with a bunch of really inspired people who really want to do cool stuff with a limited amount of resources. Do you guys have a, an additional skin on the outside of your oxidizer tank or is it just the oxidizer tank? It's uh, it's just the oxidizer tank and then of course the the, the, uh, the library, the sticker is on the outside of that. Right. Uh, and alongside the, the oxidizer tank, there's a, a cable channel that runs down the length of it. But for the rest, it's just the oxidizer tank that also supports the entire rocket. So if you if you don't have heaters on the outside of your fuel tank, how are you heating your fuel? So for tests, what we do is we have like these uh, uh, floor heating uh, heater cables. We wrap them around our, our test tanks. Um, but for the, uh, for the actual firing, I believe we have uh, infrared uh, lamps that we will use. Though um, that's maybe another thing to, to talk about after this for the launch site. We'll be launching from uh, from the south of Spain in July near sunrise. So the environment will be good. That heating will probably go quite quickly. Yeah, because if you have nitrous oxide, I wouldn't think you would need any heating. Of course, that depends on how much pressure you want, which according to the website is about 60 bar. So it's like 850 PSI. But nitrous oxide tends to always stay in a gaseous form at anywhere near room temperature. So you're saying that you have to get like even more pressurized than that? Yeah, if like around room temperature, I think it, it goes to about 30 or 40 bar. But also while we transfer it from the bottles to the tank, it expands and cools down. So after we, we fuel the rocket, 
we do need to heat it. And actually, like while we were testing in the winter, this was actually a severe problem. Like during test days, we regularly have to wait over three hours for the the, wow. the oxidation to heat up to a sufficient temperature so that we could actually test fire. Was was that something that you guys anticipated, or or was that something you found out when you got out there? Like the heating was always going to take a certain amount of time, and it's really dependent on the circumstances. Like if it's decently warm out, then it it doesn't take that long. Uh, and it also depends on the size of the tank and the wattage of, of heaters that you have. But this winter, we had a really cold uh, period where it was like really unnaturally cold. Like we, we broke some records on the, on the cold side. Uh, and at that point, actually, the, the heating took a very, very long time because of the ambient temperature in the, in the place uh, we were testing. I mean, three hours to, he to heat a tank of, of nitrous is it's pretty good. So, so you're putting infrared lamps inside the tank. Is that how that works? No, no. We we put them uh, around the the rocket and shine them at the rocket. It's not like you have to heat it during flight. You just have to get it up to temperature on the ground. Yeah. Okay. Basically, the the goal is to get the the pressure in in the tank high enough, and okay. that means the nitrous has to be a certain temperature. But in the 38 seconds of firing, that temperature is not going to change drastically. So during flight, it's fine. It's just that it has to get there before we can launch. Okay. Okay, cool. Uh, so then we had a question from the chat. This is coming from Space is Kind of Cool. And the, and the question is, is the termination system automated at all? Or is it all the control of a human on the ground? So basically, it, it is human control. There's somebody from uh, from Inta, from, uh, from the launch site there. And there is somebody from our team there, both of whom can terminate the system if necessary. But uh, we don't have a fully automated system for it. Is it partially automated at all, or is it just human-controlled? As far as I know, it's just human-controlled. If the rocket loses signal with the ground, then it also activates. Oh, okay. That's reasonable. Also, um, the final thing that's nice to mention is that our team doesn't only consist of Dutch people. We have a bunch of different nationalities. And and like if you ever look at pictures of our rocket, you'll see that uh, at the top of the uh, of our rocket, we actually have the national flags of all the uh, of all the countries that have people working on it. That's awesome. And it's over 20 different countries. So there are people from all over the world working on this thing together, which is which makes it even better uh, of a project to work on. That's really cool. We have one final question from the chat. This comes from Sam Moore. Uh, and he asks, uh, before the instability problem became apparent, Sierra Nevada Corporation were working on an SLV based on 120,000 pounds thrust. That's about 500 kilonewton hybrid motors. Um, do you think that hybrids of that size will ever actually get built? And that's a really interesting question. From my perspective, it depends on the type of hybrid. I know about the, the, the nitrous-based, sorbitol-based hybrids, and in that, I can pretty confidently say no, <laughs> um, because the uh, actually, it's mostly limited by the regression rate. Once you start building really large engines, you start having problems with that. The re regression rate is really low, so you're really limited in engine design, and also in the instabilities uh, become really bad at, at larger scale. And also that the size of your combustion chamber basically changes over the duration of the burn. And, and a bunch of these types of effects that mean that basically a, a nitrous orbital based hybrid, I don't ever see getting to the, the 500 kilonewton class. Like I, I feel like our, our rocket is pretty close to the actual limit of, of, uh, this type of, of hybrid mixture. But, uh, again, like I, I don't know that much about other fuel mixtures of hybrids so maybe with liquid oxygen and some other solid component you could make a larger hybrid but there isn't that much research in hybrids so it, it's actually kind of uh, unknown what the actual limits are because people haven't really tested them at large scale our two final questions are coming up uh, our penultimate question is where would you like to be found on the internet you can check us out on our uh, website at dare.tdelta.nl and we have, uh, from there, you can find uh, uh, our different social media that we use, but uh, they'll, they'll, those links will also be in the show notes. And yeah, like if, if you if you have further questions about what we do or, or, or anything like that, you can always contact us there. And we, uh, we try our best to answer uh, as quickly as possible. And we always like when people ask questions. So, uh, so don't be afraid. And our ultimate question, if you could bring one object with you into space, what would it be? And I assume you've thought about this ahead of time. I have, and I actually have had a lot of trouble coming up with an answer. So I'm still <laughs> an answer anyway, <laughs> because 
choosing what single item to, to, to bring to space is kind of a hard hard thing to ask. I would like to bring some sort of rocket, but like firing a rocket inside of mm -hmm. any type of space station is probably not that good of an idea. But assuming like this is some sort of sort of planet or surface place, then I would definitely bring it, bring a rocket to just fire it somewhere else because that's fun. Um, but if that's uh, if that's out of the game, I'd bring uh, a way to uh, to roll uh, my dice in zero g. So like some sort of maybe build my own centrifuge or something like that, which would allow me to uh, to roll dice in zero g. No, it's got it's got to be easier. I mean, you could you could probably have like a magnetic board, and all you need is them to stick. Well, then you just use metal dice. That's an interesting problem that I never thought of that one would have in zero g uh, rolling dice because you can't really. I mean, you could just tumble them and. I guess yeah, make them out of metal. But but, and... but what is the top, and and where does it land? Well, whatever side is facing directly away from the metal surface that it's magnetized to, yeah, that would be the top, I guess. Still not very satisfying to just like throw dice like darts at a wall. It doesn't that doesn't feel right. Hmm. Okay, I'm gonna have to think about that. I like that. <laughs> there, there's a bunch of stuff like that. There's a bunch of activities that we regularly do that depend mm -hmm. on gravity much more than people realize. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Dan, thank you so much for spending the time to talk to us. I'm, I'm really glad that we got to hear about your project in detail because we, we get fairly regular updates from you just, you know, before the show starts, we'll kind of chat about it. But it's it's really good to kind of dig into it and, and hear more about uh, the rocket you're building. Yeah, and I'll be sure to, to keep uh, sending updates as we are near our launch date and keep uh, talking about how it uh, how it's going. Yeah, we'll we'll be retweeting updates uh, from your uh, from the dear Twitter. Um, to make sure our listeners can follow along. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks for having uh, me. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. we got three launches and one other thing. Uh, so our first launch is on June 5th, and that is the launch of a Long March 3A, and that is launching Feng Yun 2H. So Fengyun is China's meteorological satellite program, and uh, that includes polar orbiting geostationary spacecraft, and the Fengyun 2H is a geostationary satellite. It's expected to orbit for about five years, so uh, standard meteorological satellite, and that's launching from Xichang Satellite Launch Center, um, again on June 5th, with a window of 1259 UTC through 1356. So about a one-hour launch window, and I'm sure you cannot watch that one live anywhere, but <laughs> just so you know, there it is. Um, next up is a Soyuz FG flying Soyuz MS-09. So this is the next the next launch up to the International Space Station. On board will be Sergei Prokopyev, uh, Alexander Gerst, who I think his birthday was recent. I think we just did uh, This Week in Spaceflight History for him. And then also a NASA astronaut, uh, Serena Aunion Chancellor. And this is starting Expedition 56. This is launching on June 6th at 11.12 UTC. And the next launch is on June 11th, and that is an H-2A-202, and that's launching from Tanagashima, Japan, and that will be launching the IGS Radar 6. That is a radar reconnaissance satellite, which is for national defense and civil natural disaster monitoring. So that window will be from 0400 UTC to 0600 UTC, so a two-hour launch window from Tanagashima, and I'm sure you can find that one online. So maybe check that one out. I know on the East Coast, it'll be pretty late in the evening, but maybe if you're up late. And then um, we have two other things that aren't launches. So the Soyuz is going to be getting to the space station. Um, the docking is scheduled um, on June 8th, which is Friday. It's scheduled at 0907 Eastern Time. The hatch opening and welcoming ceremony is scheduled for about 11.05 a.m. Eastern Time. And the coverage for all that is going to start at 8.15 a.m. Eastern Time. Um, and then also we have another thing. Um, so the Spacewalk 51 is coming up. And that's going to happen after our next show. But I wanted to mention it now because they always do the briefing ahead of time. And they don't they haven't scheduled that briefing, or at least it's not listed on NASA TV yet. Um, but those briefings, I, I say this every time, they're so good. If you're going to choose between watching the briefing and watching the spacewalk, if you're like me, you'll watch the briefing because they're, they're always just so good. Um, but keep an eye out for that. It'll happen. And it'll also go up on their YouTube page, which is where I usually find it. So Sam Moore in the chat actually points out uh, that that uh, H2A launch might actually not have a live broadcast because it is launching an IGS satellite, which um, I 
I guess since it's for national reconnaissance, maybe they don't do live broadcasts, but that's what he's pointing out. So maybe you won't see that one. Alrighty. Well, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that, it's time to end the show. So we will deorbit and we will cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at ronaldjenkins.com. And some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut. If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the ground control chat room listening to the show live. You can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital Podcast. You can send questions and comments to info at theorbitalmechanics.com. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And that is all, so we will see you in one week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Joe Pisani phoned me from RMI one day late in 1958, asking me if I'd do a thermal stability run on a sample of propargyl nitrate. I replied that I'd be glad to, but that he'd have to replace anything that got busted, since I didn't trust the stuff. So he sent his sample up to us. It was only 3cc, we usually used 5, but maybe we were lucky at that. John Zoke heated the oil bath up to 160 degrees Celsius, the temperature that we used then for routine tests, loaded the sample into the bomb, lowered the bomb into the bath, and scurried back into the lab, closing the door behind him. For obvious reasons, the setup was outdoors and not in the lab. He turned on the recorder and watched. Nothing happened for a while. The pressure rose slowly as the sample warmed up, and then seemed to stabilize. And then it let go, with an ear-splitting detonation. Through the safety glass window, we saw a huge red flare as the oil flashed into flame, only to quench immediately as it hit the ice-cold concrete. We cut everything off and went out to survey the damage. The bomb had fragmented. The burst disc just couldn't rupture fast enough. The pressure pickup was wrecked, as was the stirrer. The cylindrical stainless steel pot, which had held the oil, had been reshaped into something that would have looked well under a bed.